This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to special Oscar week edition of Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with the whole team. We have Richard Lawson, Vanity Fair's film critic. Hello. Joanna Robinson, Vanity Fair senior writer. Hello. And Mike Hogan, Vanity Fair's digital director. Hey, guys. So this is the first of five special Oscar week episodes we are doing to lead up to the big night. We're going to have a bunch of predictions. We've got some interviews. We've got some deep dives into some categories. And we're going to start this entire week off with the documentary shorts that are nominated. We'll do the live action and animated shorts in another episode, but we'll start with the docs. And also feature an interview with Roger West Williams, which is topical because he is a previous winner in this category and a nominee this year for Life Animated in the Future category. So this year's docs, uh, as I uh, as I tweeted, the Holocaust one is the most uplifting. I think it still made me yeah. cry. Yeah. It still made me cry. <laughs> oh my I mean, god, it's a, yeah. it's a cry fest. Yeah, all but in a, in the like in sort of enjoyable way. Yeah, that's the one it's where you where you way. like cry because you have faith in people, and then the rest right. of them is. Uh, Although it's also there's a subtext. Okay, so j- j- we're talking about Joe's violin. Yeah, should we just jump right in? Can sure. Yeah, Joe's list? violin, which is a, a CNE production. Our um, yes, our uh, own sister company. I guess ah. Sarah B. Lash yeah. uh, acquired it. And you can you can watch it on the scene, and uh, yeah, it tells the story of the um, classical music station in New York. Mm-hmm. Did an instrument drive? Said if you got an instrument that you don't use, donate it. We'll give it to you know school kids. And this guy was a Holocaust survivor, Joe Joseph, mm-hmm. and had spent most of the war in Siberia. His father, I believe, was killed in no, his mother and his mother, mother and younger was, brother. He reunited with his father and other brother after the war. Right, he had family members killed in the Holocaust and had played violin as a little kid, bought a violin. Uh, he bought it at like at a, a displa- flea market. Or like a refugee person. camp, yeah. 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 Right. So they found out the great backstory of this violin. They gave it to a promising, or they lent it to a promising student at a school in the poorest county in... In the Bronx, Poorest yeah. congressional district in the country. In the country, in the Bronx. And this girl is so adorable and sweet and grateful. And then Joe and her meet. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you just want to... Yeah, and it just, you're sad about the past, you're hopeful for the future, it's nice to see these two generations come together, and it's just really yeah. nice. Yeah, and but, he, you're, but you're not hopeful because Donald Trump's president, so you're like, she'll probably be deported and maybe <laughs> oh killed. Well, yeah, I mean, also, like, yeah, goodbye any sort of funding for the arts and public schools or whatever. Oh, yeah, right. Sure. It's all, sure. Everything is just, yeah. sorry, but yeah, the Trump thing makes it way more disturbing. Yeah, it was probably it more fun to watch before the election, as is true for many things. Uh, I like how kind of unwilling, not an unwilling subject, but he's not really going to lean into the sentimentality. He's like, I didn't no. need the violin, so I just gave it to somebody else. And yes, he's like, yeah. obviously very much appreciates this girl and like is grateful, but he's not giving you the big weepy scene, which is kind of nice. He's like a, you yeah. know, restrained old man. Yeah. But then doesn't he say at one point, I'm in love with you? <laughs> creepy, definitely... but in a cute yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's she's learned a song that is associated with his mom. Who, you yeah. know, and it's yeah. just like yeah. 
Uh, it's devastating. Yeah, it's, it's leaning on those heartstrings. So that yeah. was the, that was the first one I watched, but it's not the only one that has a connection to us because the White Helmets. We had the director and producer as guest on this show a couple weeks ago. Yes. So how is the devastation? Were, level and they're on lucky the White to be alive. Oh my god! Well, so a lot of the photography in that is coming from one of the White Helmets who was intending to attend the Oscars right. before the immigration ban. Um, yeah. Right. But anyway, so that one, I feel like, really ratchets up the devastation level. You know, there's the shot yeah. of the baby rescued from the rubble. Oh uh, it was a week old. And oh. these, these brave, you know, mostly young men who are tearing into, right after a bomb goes off, you know, racing toward it. You know, what's that... Um, that Mr. Rogers quote of, you know, something mm-hmm. bad happens, look to the helpers, yeah, what, you'll yeah, yeah. find the helpers and look, yeah. to the, you know, and in that way, it's inspiring. But it's also, you know, there are three documentary shorts this year nominated that are about Syria in, mm-hmm. in various ways. And watching it, you know, I watched them all kind of in, a, in one chunk. You just get so mad at the rhetoric, you know, that's if, if the people who are trying to ban refugees and yeah, ban yeah, Muslims yeah. could just watch one of these. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. could take Tommy Laren, who had that meme about like, you know, Americans stay and fight, Syrians run. It's like, okay, we'll watch one of these and see. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the White Helmets, I mean, it's really right there. Like they literally are staying and fighting. Yeah. And, yeah. and well, not fighting. How helping. do you fight a fighter jet? That's, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And like, well, and they keep saying, oh, it's the Russians. It's the Russians. And yeah. then they blow up an apartment building mm-hmm. full of kids. Yeah. They're like, oh, great. Our new pals, the Russians. <laughs> terrific work everybody yeah Yeah. it's kind of fascinating because you know i i listened to the episode uh katie where you talked to the filmmakers and i was vaguely aware of the documentary but having watched it i did of course that thing you do where you're like i want to learn more about this real life subject that i knew nothing about and i don't know if you've googled the white helmets but they are I would say the victim of Russian propaganda because the Russians don't like the white helmets as they're funded by the West and they are not affiliated according to the documentary. They rescue anyone who has been injured in the civil war, but you know, the Russian funded side thinks the white helmets are Western propaganda against their side. So the first results that you get, if you Google white helmets is like white helmets, controversy, white helmets, propaganda. And there's all this fake news about how they are like a, you know, you can't, you can't fake this documentary as far as I'm concerned, but there's all these articles about how it's, you know, us or UK or German propaganda to make the Russians and the president of Syria look bad. And um, that's sort of a fascinating wrinkle on top of everything, but it's an incredible documentary. And, you know, I, I was sort of checking back in on what the status was of one of the white helmets and the cinematographer. Well, they're both white helmets, but one of the subjects, one of the cinematographer, which the filmmakers wanted to bring to the Oscars. And as of a week ago, According to an interview and deadline, even though the ban has been sort of halted or or suspended or or whatever, they still say it's like very unlikely that those subjects can come to the Oscars, which I mean, it seems so silly for me to be upset about who can come to the Oscars and who can't. But it's just it's such an indignity for these actual heroes, entire heroes. Yeah, these guys are amazingly brave. You know, judging from the documentary, they are true heroes doing things that, as my fiance said when we were watching it, and I was saying, yeah, they can't come to the (laughs) Oscars. And she was like, one of these guys has more courage in his toenail clipping than Donald Trump has in in his entire body. And that is the overwhelming sense you get from this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable what they do. And I just, you know, very early on in the the movie... um, you know, they hear the jet, they say it's the Russians, you hear an explosion, and they just get right in a car and drive toward it. Yeah, it's, it's like, like firefighters. Yeah, it's like firefighters like thing. Pull, yeah. pulling people out of rubble. Yeah, and they barely have equipment. They have, you know, some of them have the white helmets. Yeah. But like, it's just, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. it's really strong, though. 
it's good filmmaking too. I mean, you it know, is. it's, it's well yes. cut together. It tells a story in a short amount of time. And, yeah. yeah. One of them talks about how he was a fighter for the opposition. And then mm-hmm. he decided that this was the better thing that he could do. Right. And they keep talking about how they consider everyone their brother, or all the children that they rescued their children. And it just, you know, for those of us who have a hard time wrapping our heads around Syria, I include myself in this category. These three shorts, but particularly this one, just really... I don't know, crystallizes a lot for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the other one that actually films inside Aleppo, Watani, My Homeland. I think Watani is Arabic for homeland. I think I figured that out over the course of the film. Yeah. But it kind of is this expansive story about this family that's living in Aleppo. The father is a rebel fighter, and then eventually they, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. You don't, almost a, don't want to spoil it. I didn't know what was going to happen in the story, and I was very worried for a long time. Yeah. I mean, wh- that's a good point. He, the father is a, a fighter for the Free Syrian Army. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm and at get some point wrong. runs into trouble with Daesh, with, yeah. with ISIS. And he the family, and his wife and their four kids are just living like in the middle of this stronghold of the war. It's yeah. really because wild. his kids didn't want to like. Originally, their mom took them away, and they didn't want to live without their dad, so yeah. they came back and lived in the war zone, yeah. basically. And this is the most photogenic family. Oh, yeah. In history. Yeah. I mean, this, I was trying to think if I were, could show one of these to Donald Trump, this would be the one I would show. Right. Because mm. the, hus- the husband would be like, these kids oh, the are right out of like- cast- central casting. Yeah. Now that's a refugee, okay? <laughs> that is like an oh, eight to nine <laughs> refugee. <laughs> But I mean, like, you can't help but love them. This oh, is the my most God. lovable family. And they're, they're funny. They're gorgeous. And, yeah. They're hilarious. They're full of joy. Yeah. They're going through unbelievable hardship and crisis. Yeah. And the thought of them as like, you know, candies in a bowl of poison Skittles, you just want to kill yourself that mm, anyone would ever mm. think about humans like yeah. this in that way. Yeah. I mean, I can't. Has it been optioned to be a film yet? Because it really should be. Well, Someone and uh, uh, back to the White Helmets. It has been. George Clooney is planning to make a future version of the White Helmets. But, Someone uh, should do this one. Yeah, I mean, but it, would it be any more powerful than the short? Because seeing these kids and like watching them play ISIS or play yeah. on the beach or something like that, like they are so compelling. It's hard to imagine a wandering version. around with an enormous gun. Um, it's true. It's yeah. probably it would be hard to pull off to do, but but. It's it's just an incredibly inspiring, yeah, disturbing, sad, and over story. yeah over the course of three years. So watching them grow. Well, that's um, another thing to spend yeah. three years and make a forty minute short to me. Is, I know, is very although it's but it's so uh, efficient, you know, like yeah, it, it, they get so much story in there, and it's so powerful in its forty minutes. To me, this was the most effective of the bunch, just because I think, you know. Not that the White Helmets is not powerful at all. I mean, we, but we've seen this kind of rubble footage before. But this, in the way that it spends a long time with the people, I think that the most crucial thing about it is that, yes, the kids, once they you know resettle in Germany and sort of life begins anew for them, they start to kind of assimilate a little bit, or some of them do. But the mother and the brother, it seems like, the son, they really want to go home mm-hmm. and they want to go back to Syria. And I think yep. that there's this really nasty notion that like people are using war as an excuse to come flooding into western countries yeah, and yeah, just yeah. sort of take advantage of social services they they don't want to be there i mean the younger kids will eventually grow to want to be there because it's safe and it's you know it's it's their life it's what they know yeah but like this notion that they just are like happy to leave where they're from and they've it's like left nonsense. their grandmother and their cousins you yeah, see them you skyping see the, yeah, with yeah exactly them. And, yeah. And, and i think another thing is that it shows that life does still happen in Syria, you know, or the same as the White Helmet shows, like mm-hmm. people are on Skype, they're having tea, they're, you know, it's yeah. it's not like it's constant, you know, 
But but um, it's fairly constant. You also see just how insanely yeah. difficult yeah. life yeah. is. You know, yeah. if they had a choice to stay, presumably they would have stayed. Yeah, right. oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, they're living in with constant. I mean, one of the amazing things is when they're in the bus on their way to or the car on their way to the house that they settle in since yeah. we have given this away. Sure. And the mother says, wow, not a single house destroyed by shelling. Yeah. You just think, holy uh, crap. I know that yeah. that can be like mind blowing. And yeah. I, I think this is what I'd want to show not just Trump, but basically any American and the way that they settle in this town in Germany and they make friends and you see the kids at the ice skating rink making friends yes. with other German kids. And just the idea that having a refugee family in your town can be this huge benefit. Yeah, it's if you're like, not a dick about it, it yeah. can be wonderful. <laughs> like these are just people yeah. who want to be your friend in kindergarten, just like anybody else. It's so hard to consider how many Americans just want to fully turn their back or, but I mean, I don't want to skip forward to the next short necessarily, but seeing how a community is burdened, to use an unfortunate word, by a massive influx of immigrants or refugees. Sure. Yes. You don't want to like abandon your compassion at all, but this other short, which is what, 4.1 miles, mm-hmm. it does show how the Isle of Lesbos is sort of like overrun. Yeah, no by... no community in America has this problem, but in Greece, definitely. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't back it up at all, but like the, the Midwesterners <laughs> that I've heard on NPR talk about the Syrians that invaded their town. I know it is on a much smaller scale and probably more akin to this German town that we see in Watani, but they feel like their community is being overburdened. And you are all so right that if they just saw one of these shorts, they'd be like, but it's worth it. Well, I, but, but I mean, let's not, I also don't want to gloss like the real problems. The 4.1 miles is, so that's the story of a ship's captain, I guess, or boat, boat yeah, the captain, Greek Coast Guard. Uh, Greek Coast Guard in Lesbos, whose job is basically all day, every day to go out and rescue people who've been abandoned by smugglers, mm-hmm. you know, off the coast of Lesbos and are yeah. floating around helplessly. It's 4.1 miles between the coast of Turkey and Lesbos. So that's yeah. kind of the shortest route to make it to the West. I think this one's better for liberals to watch, to be like, okay, there's, seriously something very difficult and troubling happening and there needs to be an actual policy dealing with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like oh. something, this is not sustainable. Either, well, I think right? that, so compassion is great, but also like there needs to be some kind of order brought to this yeah, whole process for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is very similar to Fire at Sea, which is nominated mm-hmm. in the feature documentary category, but that's about Italy, not Greece. But in 4.1 Miles, you see the main guy, the captain saying, you know, we're doing all of this. There's no one is helping. Yeah. Like, you know, people yes. need to see this. So it's not that this community is saying we don't want to help these people. It's saying we need help helping these people. Yeah. yeah. And, and I this think that's is where really the Obama yeah. administration and, you know, Merkel and Europe really dropped the ball and set the table for the big blowback that's happening. It's right. like all this happened under Obama. Like where mm-hmm. were where were we when this craziness yeah. was unfolding? So, you know, there's enough blame to go around for everybody, yeah. I think. But the way to help is to have more refugees be able to settle in Western countries and not close with a poorly worded travel ban, I think. Well, the tra- the demonizing in travel bans obviously not a solution. You know, no. it's a, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's certainly a thorny issue, right? Yeah. Because once you open the door, then you create a smuggling operation that's endangering lives and killing people too. So it would be great if we had like a rational, yeah, or fix you know, it by you know fixing Syria. Let people well, go exactly. Back to yeah. yeah. And I read something by George Soros. So take it for if did he pay you to far right people? Too? And actually, he sent me a check this morning. <laughs> but he had not to get into politics here. But we're talking about this category is all politics. Mostly, but he said that Putin is not a great strategist, but he's a great tactician. And when he realized that his horrible behavior in Syria was flooding Europe with refugees, he realized that's great for him because it's helping to destroy the EU. 
you know, it's worth thinking about all this stuff. This yeah. is a very complicated yeah. situation and network of problems. Yeah, and then you see something like 4.1 Miles where this huge complicated situation comes to this one guy who has to go pull a woman with her two children out of the ocean. Like how yeah. incredibly simple that is. It goes macro yeah. to micro. Yeah. 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 And it's so interesting that you talk about George Clooney sort of optioning the white helmets because when I was watching this, I was like, well, this is this should be Clooney. This guy, Kyriakos Papadopoulos, who's this Coast Guard, he's just this stoic figure of this man and he like you said earlier like he's not breaking down and crying he's just calmly writing in his ledger about the like wounded or dead people that he pulled out of the water and just going about his day which is an insane day i mean i don't know if it's silly to say like i could see a feature film out of this but i I would watch this feature film for sure. And, and I want to know more about the town. You know, they're talking about all the, all the abandoned children in the hospitals and like how the town is or the island is sort of grappling with this whole. I wanted more basically yeah. from this short. Some of the other shorts, I was like, this is about the limit of what I could take. But this one, I was like, I want more of this story. I think Fire at Sea provides that somewhat. I mean, obviously a different mm-hmm. context. It's yes, more North yes. African and East African refugees. And, but yeah, I mean, it's something that's a daily part of life for a lot of islands in the Mediterranean. And it's not something that we think about enough, you know. And I think that 4.1 Miles is on New York Times website, right? Yeah. So people can yeah. actually watch it. Well, the nice yeah. thing about the current state of the internet is that a lot of these are available. 4.1 Miles is New York Times, shows violin is Connie Das Entertainment. Uh, Netflix has White Helmets and then the last one, Extremis, which we'll talk about. So Watani, My Homeland, I think is the only one you can't watch online right now. Oh, uh, but let's talk about Extremis. Which, uh, oh, extremist. Um, oh, that's I'm going I'm I'm to be perfectly honest. I watched about seven minutes of it and turned it off. I couldn't. I, it's I watched hard. It was the last one I watched. And I was like, yeah. it was like midnight last. I was just like, I can't. Okay, by the way, don't do what we did and watch all of these in a row. <laughs> You'll well, really want to jump out a window. It's I mean, too yeah. somebody, somebody warned me and I watched Joe's violin last. They were like, watch Joe's violin oh, that's last. That's a good idea. It'll be a band aid for you. And I was like, okay. I watched it and then I would check the baby monitor just to make sure the baby was like there. Just because <sighs> something, this, this movies get to you, you're like, is it? Anything okay? Are we yeah. like I had a yeah. dream about escaping bombing. Okay. Anyway, so Extremis is set in a hospital, I think, in Texas, where and it's basically about no, it's, people. Uh, Oakland, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and it's basically a, one doctor, this really fascinating woman who's kind of counseling people who whose loved ones are in the hospital and things, saying, "Do you really want to have them on the breathing tube for the rest of their lives? Can you make the decision to not pull the plug, but kind of let?" nature take its course kind of pull the plug yeah yeah, yeah. and it's a you know the decision that i think all of us fear we'll have to make someday and hope we never will that you know is happening every day and it's a worthy topic but whew. yeah i mean there was again i i had to turn it off at a certain <laughs> point but early on you know she's kind of talking with a bunch of nurses and other doctors and she's like everyone in this room is going to die someday it's just a fact of life yeah but it would be great it's, it's best if we can have some sort of you know choice or dignity about how we do it mm-hmm. yeah. um and yeah i mean what i saw of it was i you know i mean it's well made When you watch these documentaries, something I always think about is like the subjects who allow themselves to have cameras invade these moments in their life. You know, so like the doctor is one thing and she's her own like very heroic figure, but these family members who are going through one of the hardest decisions of their lives, I think there's like four different brothers who are like older men and their sisters are on life support, older women. And uh, it made me really want to have a brother, like honestly watching this movie and like (laughs) um, to, to care for me and make these decisions for me. No offense to my sister but um <laughs> you know like it's really emotional and for them to have you know a young woman and her mother's on life support for them to share this with the camera is pretty extraordinary you know so it's very upsetting yeah all of these just made me think i hate myself my entire <laughs> yeah. life is worthless and i do yeah. nothing uh, to add to the 
general Yeah, what have I done ever in my life that's value. at all important? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. No, you look at that doctor and the extremist and you're like, okay, so that's your day and I think I have a hard yeah. day when I come home. Yeah. I know, like I was complaining about watching these documentaries and how hard it was <laughs> right. for me to watch People them. are living like, them. Oh, here's this Coast Guard and this doctor and these right. white helmets and these children who have like, oh, you know, job. Just, All right, so let's uh, take the macro view. What's going to win? <laughs> yeah, anyway, back to <laughs> yeah. our back to the worthless uh, oh, role in and life. I, and I should note that the mother from Watani uh, is attending the Oscars, so that'll be fun oh, to look out for her. Well. Yeah, good for her. Um, I think that could win. I think I think it has the human it is component. really powerful. Yeah. And I think, you know, White Helmets is fascinating and really well done. But I think my homeland tells a story. It has an arc, you know. Yeah. And I think that people will respond to that. It's one of the longer ones, which I don't know if that's a deterrent for people, but yeah. it's like 40 minutes. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. 40 being the the limit. There was a listener tweeting kind of wondering how the White Helmets qualifies because it's just over 40 minutes, but maybe without credits, they count yeah, it as 40 yeah, minutes. Somehow yeah. that one and uh, Watani qualify. I mean, They're I'm, both 40. The other three are 20-ish. Yeah. yeah. 25. Yeah. I'm going to say Watani wins. Yeah. I think that would be my pick. I don't know if people watch. I, I wonder if people kind of pick it out, but it's, when you just look at the titles, you don't know like which one's the Holocaust one or something like right, that. So right. if people are watching it, and honestly, documentaries about Syria yeah. are so topical that... yeah. Although Joe's violin has It's that. really good. I was wondering if, I mean, this is so cynical, but like if voters don't actually end up watching, if they're like, oh, the White Helmets, that's the one that was in the news. Yeah, I mean, I think one, that's where something you know? like, you know, George Clooney hosting screenings for it, you know, and it's got oh, Netflix behind sure. it. There's a power there for sure. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and of course, we have to talk about the cynical thing about Holocaust generally being a big winner in yeah. Oscar history, documentary yeah. history, especially. My gut is it's either Joe's Violin or Watani. But if people watch all five of them, I believe, and I love our friends at CNE and I love Joe's Violin. I thought it was really, really good and moving. Yeah. But I think Watani's just unbelievable. That's you know three four years of filmmaking in two different countries. Yeah, um, in, a, in war in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always think about for a great documentary, you have to not only be good, you got to be lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, they just filmed that family. Who knows how many families they filmed? They had this man, you know, who was with his family yeah. in Aleppo, and that whole story unfolds, and they're able to stay with him over all that time. And mm-hmm. they're and for them to, it's just like that's really incredible. And it has, I know for them to for them to have footage of him yeah. in that first year. That kind of makes it even more so, you know, like then you feel the loss so much more because he, you see him with his kids and it's just, ugh. Yeah, I think that's the one that really kind of rises to a whole other level, even though all, all of them are, are quite good. And yeah, moving. I think I'd put my pick behind the White Helmets just for the muscle behind it that yeah. uh, that yeah. Netflix has. That's uh, but that's also a super worthy winner. You know, it's hard to really say any of these are not worthy. So, And Joe's Violin, if it does win, it wouldn't necessarily just be Holocaust, um, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want to call it, the Holocaust effect. Yeah. Um, it really is also just uplifting in a way that I think the other ones aren't. And people sometimes are just respond to that better that's what i was thinking maybe it's like the la la land of the documentaries yeah people are just like oh here's the like uplifting relief i don't want to vote for moonlight in manchester i want to vote for la la land like i want to vote for joe's violin and on its own terms it's incredibly effective you know it's Mm -hmm. not you know not every documentary has to be four years of shooting into war-torn right it's just yeah maybe a little less urgent you know yeah well so this is going up on a monday so Mm -hmm. by tuesday we'll have our predictions on the site so we'll have made a decision about what we think is going to win (laughs) We just got to think about it. 
So as we were saying, some of these are available online right now, but all of the Oscar-nominated shorts, uh, including these, are going to be on demand on iTunes on February 21st, so you will have time to catch up. And they're always worth watching. Oh, yes, so worth watching. They're they're nominated for a reason. They're usually all very good. Absolutely. And now staying on the documentary beat, we're going to share my interview with Roger Ross Williams, who directed the documentary Life Animated, which is nominated in the documentary feature category. And uh, Roger actually previously won in the documentary short category for Music by Prudence. So he has some Oscar experience to share with us. So I'm here with Roger Ross Williams, the director of Life Animated, who's joined us in studio or joined me in studio. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. So we got, I think, a week and a half until Oscars as we talk. Yes. This movie came out in July. So it's been a long period of talking about this movie and being on a circuit for it. Well, it it came out at Sundance. Oh, God, of course. Yeah. So over a year. It's been over a year on the road. And it's, it's been amazing. I've been on the road. Pretty much with the Suskind family. For yeah. Last year. Well, I mean, you have Owen Suskind, who is not just the star of the documentary, but seems like kind of the star of the publicity circuit. Like, does that take some of the pressure off of you where you have this character to do all the talking? It really does, because Owen is such a rock star, and wherever he goes, audiences just go crazy. Um, he's actually really great at press, and he loves he loves the process. He loves yeah. someone asked him the other day, they said, Owen, um, you're a celebrity now. And he's like, I'm not a celebrity. Celebrities are out for themselves. I'm just someone who's being celebrated this year. He's learned a lot about Hollywood in a very short period he has. of time. He's very wise. He's learned, yeah. he's, you know, Owen grew up on a diet of myth and fable from mm. these Disney films. And so he's become very wise in life. Yeah. So from when the film began, I think you spent a year with the family making the film and then it's been another year and a half. So how's that relationship with you and Owen and his parents developed since then? It's uh, been great because they really are out there in a big way, really, you know, giving hope to parents with new diagnosis, Mm -hmm. um, talking about the issues. And that's why they you know, that's why Ron wrote the book and that's why, you know, they agreed to be in the film because Owen came to them and said, uh, people look past me. Mm-hmm. People don't see me for who I am. And he wanted people to know who he is. He called himself a diamond in the rough. Yeah. So that's why they're, that's their mission, really. And um, they've been really committed in a really big way. They're amazing and beautiful family. They're just I would say this is a film about love. Because they really are a loving family. Well, you said that before you made this film, which you know, Owen Suskind has autism. He's communicating with the world through Disney. I didn't really set up the, the premise of the movie now that I have to tell you. Um, but you said you didn't know a lot about autism before you took it on. And that's, uh, you know, it's not, it's a complicated world. It's there's the families with autism have this whole like universe that they operate in. Was that something intimidating for you to come into not knowing anything about autism and kind of stepping into this world that's got, you know, its own operations? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had no connection to um, autism. And so I was uncomfortable in the beginning. Um, you know, Owen is its always he's pacing and talking to himself and you don't know what to make of it. And what I thought when I was sort of editing this film is I thought I should make that part of the film. The part discomfort. Of the ex- this discovery part of the experience, because the whole idea behind the film is to see the world through Owen's eyes, through mm-hmm. Owen's point of view, and to slowly transform it. So you may start off uncomfortable. You see Owen sort of pacing about and talking to himself, and you don't know quite, can't make out what he's saying and what's going on. And by the end of the film, you are in there with him. You're mm-hmm. in his world. You're in his head, and you're totally immersed, and you totally understand what autism is and Owen's sort of 
beautiful and colorful world. And that was always the the idea, is to really see the world through Owen's eyes from the inside looking out. So as someone who writes about the movies and is engaged in the film industry, at about 20 minutes into this movie, all I could think of was how in the world did they get all of the rights? Because Disney films, I mean, you know, these are the animated movies that they lock up in the vault for 20 years and then sell in special editions. They really protect these animated films. And you guys got to not just show clips, but, you know, illustrate Iago. And you have the whole uh, short film that's in the middle of it. What was that conversation like with Disney? I mean, I know there's lawyers on lawyers who do these things. But what do you think was what sold them on letting you guys use these clips? I think, you know, it was... Was um, really uh, Sean Bailey, who is the president of Disney Productions, is a trustee on the board of Sundance. Carrie Putnam from Sundance connected us. You know, I'm part of the Sundance family. I've got many grants from Sundance, served on the alumni board. And um, Sean, I went in and I sort of, you know, pitched the film to Sean. So it was a face to face conversation, is where it started. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, seems important. Yeah, it was really important. And he really, he loved the book. He loved the story, the idea behind it. But, and he said he would sort of help me, sort of shepherd me through the whole maze of Disney. And Julie Goldman, my producer, and I went in and we pitched to, he put it together all the heads of all the different divisions of head of legal, oh head God. of, head of legal, tough, tough. Yeah. Guy. yeah. Um, uh, head of marketing. The animation people all together in one room. I don't know it was a big room. I'm sure people. there are so many Disney filmmakers who would kill to be in that room to get. Uh, all it was those well, a lot of them hadn't met each other actually. Yeah. Um, such a big company, and they were, and I was, you know, it was really intimidating because mm-hmm. there are all these powerful people in one room, and and I had to take them on a journey through the film. So I had put together a whole presentation with um, home movies and clips, and I had filmed Disney Club. So mm-hmm. I had, mm-hmm. I showed them Disney Club and um. Oh, and, and and so had Gilbert Gottfried, had that happened already? No. Okay, so, all um, right. But I, so I just took them on like a journey of what the film could be. And and by the end, when the lights came up, there were sniffles and <laughs> they were really moved. And I think they were so moved because they really didn't realize that what they do could actually change someone's life. Yeah. You know, they know what a big role it plays in our culture, but to change a life. And so they really didn't stand in the way and we licensed the footage but that was a there was a process and mm-hmm. it took as long as it did to shoot the film it took about a year to go through that process but when they watched the rough cut i mean they just loved it so they even led us in the land of the lost sidekicks mm-hmm. which is this world that owen creates the land of the lost sidekicks is about a little boy who um, at three years old gets swept up in a storm into this land of the lost sidekicks. And the sidekicks are all lost because the heroes have fulfilled their destiny. And they have to battle these villains and find their inner hero. And this is Owen's autobiography. He's written this himself. And it's the film that you really beautifully animate in the middle of Life Animated. animated. So they let us redraw their characters. Which they is wild. It's such a is, wild thing to see in a movie. You know, there's fan art everywhere on the internet, but you never see it kind of officially sanctioned by Disney in this way. They let and they let them enter. Someone in the meeting said, "You mean our characters are going to intermingle from different films?" <laughs> I know. They couldn't believe that. I know. They, they were like, "They couldn't get around." They think, "Well, we don't. We've never. Inter- we don't intermingle our." You know, yeah, you just like so, a boo the monkey and like Lumiere <laughs> from Beauty and the Beast together. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it with this amazing group of French animators in Paris called McGuff, Philippe and Mathieu and Olivier. And we just, we recently got an award, the Annie Award, the animation, mm. 
the yeah. animation Oscars, yeah. a special award, and they all came out. And there was the whole animation community. And, you know, the people who work for Disney, who created these films, Ron Clemens, and, and all these, you know, sort of, were all like there to celebrate life animated and celebrate Owen and Owen made a killer speech. You can watch it on our Facebook page. Oh, it man. It's like, yeah. the, it's like in the end of the film, Owen makes this sort of epic speech mm-hmm. at a convention in France, as it turns out, everything, in France, everything connects to France somehow. Everything somehow connects to France. <laughs> Isn't that the way it always is? Um, and uh, he made this really incredible speech at a, the first convention studying affinity therapy, which is a term that Suskind's created, which is really about connecting to someone with autism through their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, many people with autism have a fo- have passion, something they focus on, and sort of finding a pathway through their passion. And um, this was the first convention because of the book of, you know, educators and scientists all assembled. And Owen gets up there and just knocks it out of the park. Yeah. And he did it again at the Annie Awards last week. He stood up there and there was a pause. He was like, uh, and we didn't know what's going to happen. And then he said, I've lived with these characters all my life. They live within me and, and you have all given me my voice mm-hmm. and given me an ability to connect to the world through the characters that you create. And thank you. It was just beautiful. I'm not yeah. even doing it justice. It was beautiful. So is Owen going to the Oscars? Of course. <laughs> Owen is going to the Oscars. He was fitted. Um, it was very, we were in LA last week and we did a screening at Disney and he was uh, fitted for his tux at the Chateau Marmont. Ooh, um, he doesn't get more um, LA than that. No, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, I believe Tommy Hilfinger, who's a friend of the family and project, is doing Owen's tux and um, him and Walt. So the whole Suskind family will oh, be great. at the Oscars. I think Walt might be the underrated hero of the movie. He's such a great figure. That's, I'm really glad he's coming. That's so great you say that because he really is. You know, he's kind of the only one that Owen draws as a hero. Mm-hmm. Owen draws everyone as sidekicks. And um, Walt has really emerged as this incredible hero because he's sort of spoken up for siblings and what mm-hmm. siblings went through. And his and the way he he helps Owen navigate the world, you know, beyond Disney. There's a point where um, Michelle Garcia winner in the film says, you know, life is not a Disney film and Owen has to navigate sex. Mm-hmm. I won't give anything away, but, yeah. but, um, Walt, he, I think her- take, heroically takes on the big brother role. Yes. Hero- heroically takes on the big brother role and then expresses his, you know, how he feels as a big brother that he has this incredible responsibility mm-hmm. to take care of Owen and, you know, and take care of his parents. And he feels that and many siblings and he's started sibling organization and, um, him and Owen recently went to the ARC convention, the, the big convention for disabilities in Orlando and spoke about siblings and how, you know, that relationship between siblings, which is really important and it often gets overlooked. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask what Owen's up to since the film ended, but it sounds like, you know, nationwide speaking tour. Like that's I know. What else is he up to? Speaking tour. um, You know, he's, yes, he's been on the road a lot because we've played at a lot of film festivals, a lot of opening nights. One of the highlights, we did opening night at the Montclair Film Festival, and there were 1,700 people, and it was moderated by Stephen Colbert. Oh, yeah, because he's involved. I think his wife is on the he's board involved, of that. Yeah. yeah. Ron has done the show, and he hosted a party for us for the film. Wow. Um, love Stephen Colbert for many reasons. But um, Owen has been really thriving on the road, and he is still working at the Regal Cinema. Mm-hmm. 
what he loves is being around movies. This is this is a film about the power of cinema, the power of story to change someone's life. So Owen, you know, it's a natural place for him to be. He works teaching kids to draw at a gallery and he works at Toys R Us. Oh, he's busy. Um, but his dream is to, and he will say this every single time that his dream is to one day live in Burbank, California and work for the Walt Disney Company. He sounds like he's got some good connections there now. <laughs> he <laughs> like has, they know who I he mean, is. Boy, do they know who he is. <laughs> and they, the, the animators really turn out when he shows up there because they know the, how much he just loves their work. And also, he knows everything about every animator. So they can just tell them their name and he will tell them their entire resume. He's a walking IMDb. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. It's so incredible. Uh, I know that I think you said in another interview that he really prefers the old hand-drawn films to the modern ones. Where is he on Moana? I don't want to blow up Disney's he loves, spot or anything. He loves Moana. And okay. He, and he's, he's, he really now appreciates all different type of animation, um, including computer-generated animation. Okay. He loves hand-drawn animation because of the the emotion, the, the sort of, you know, there's something about an artist's hand on a, on a paper drawing something. Mm-hmm. And the animators used... In the Land of the Lost Sidekicks in the book, um, which is the last chapter in the book, it ends with this, this sort of epic battle and him and the sidekicks are trying to defeat this, the biggest villain of them all. And they can't defeat this villain. And they wander into an old animation studio where mm-hmm. the animators have long abandoned their and their desks, their drawing mm-hmm. desks. And there's a mirror on the desk. They used to use the mirror. These animators used to use the mirror to make facial expressions mm-hmm. to see how to draw emotions mm-hmm. on characters. And so they, they're they like, the mirror, use the mirror. And they turn the mirror to the monster and they realize he's a bunch of zeros and ones and digits and the monster disintegrates because he's not real. Wow. He's computer generated. This is very, this works on a lot of levels. I know, this <laughs> work on a lot Seriously. of levels. Isn't it amazing? Wow. Owen is incredible. And, um, you know, he never ceases to surprise me. And so um, I'm happy the film is nominated because more people will get to know him. And I think that's really important, especially in this day and age where we have a leader who um, has mocked people with disabilities, mm-hmm. um, a president who has mocked people with disabilities, and that Owen and people like him have a voice and a place. Everyone should have a place. Everyone deserves a place in America, in the world. And I think that, you know, this is really Owen becoming the hero of his own journey. Mm-hmm. And really, it's so important that people see this film and learn that, you know, one in four people, one in four people are born neurodiverse now. So that's a huge segment of the population that people have looked past mm-hmm. or mocked, that have been bullied. Cornelia said the other day, they said, who would be the one person you'd want to see this film? And she said, uh, President Trump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. President Trump. Because if anyone needs to understand people like Owen, it's him. Yeah. Well, it's on Amazon Prime. I don't know if he, uh, I don't know if he's watching anything. He's too busy tweeting, but he, um, (laughs) he should, he should, uh, yeah. (laughs) So you have been down the Oscar road before. You were, uh, I think, the first African American director to win an Oscar, which is, which is wild, which is really bizarre because there's so many great directors before me. And to think that none of them have had won 
until me. That's, that's, yeah. that's well, and you're nominated alongside three others in the documentary category, which I think is an, uh, you know, Epic. for all the attention that, you know, we're getting for Violet Davis is probably going to win in this, you know, diverse class, the documentary field, that's a really wild thing. Do you think that's pure coincidence or is there something that led to that? I think the documentary branch of the Academy and I'm governor of the documentary branch. So you have to say nice things about it. No, I really, truly believe that we are sort of, you know, leading the way in the academy. We have a, a diverse branch. The other two governors, there's three governors in each branch, are women. And I think it's the nature of documentary. I think that the topics we tackle in documentary films, the nature of documentary really open us up to really explore the full human condition. And I think that it's so amazing and so great that we have four African-American directors. And um, such a wide variety of films, too. And a wide variety of films, amazing, beautiful films that cover the, the spectrum of important topics. I mean, all of the films cover an important topic. And Life Animated, you know, people who are neurodiverse and who, who are living with autism, this is an important issue of our time as in the numbers are growing they're not getting smaller mm-hmm. they're, they're growing massively of people who are neurodiverse so they need people need to understand who they are and that they have something to offer the world so all the films are important but i think um we really tackled race this year in a big way in yeah. the documentary nominations so yeah. i'm really i'm really proud of the community and i'm 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 actually proud to be the governor of the documentary branch and i hope that we continue we have a long way to go still with our branch but i hope that we continue to grow and to reflect america yeah so having won before, having gone through the whole experience of taking the stage, how are you preparing for going back to the Oscars again this year as a nominee? Um, I, you know, you can't really prepare for that. It's a really, as you can imagine, a really overwhelming experience. <laughs> Even and though it's... you practice your Oscar speech in the shower like all of us do, you, you're not really prepared for the real thing. You're not. And I think that for me, none of that works, that sort of practicing in the shower or anything. What it is is when you get, if you're honored enough to make it to that stage, you speak from your heart and you really need to ground yourself because it's overwhelming. You're looking down there and there's Meryl Streep and, <laughs> and all these amazing people, my like heroes and these incredible filmmakers. And you could get overwhelmed and intimidated and you have to sort of be in the moment and ground yourself and reach into your, your heart and speak from your heart because that's the way that's, that's the way. To, and that's what Oscar speeches, that's what the best Oscar speeches oh, are totally. about. And I think that that's what I try to do. And, you know, if I were lucky enough to win, I would, want to have Owen there next to me and I would want to speak for all the neurodiverse people in the world who feel left behind and all the people in the world who feel like sidekicks. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm a sidekick. I felt like a sidekick as a black gay man. And here we are, this black gay man who also feels like a sidekick and this neurodiverse autistic man and we've come together to sort of champion the sidekicks. And that's what I would talk about. All of us sidekicks in the world. Well, now you have me looking forward to your Oscar speech. So <laughs> everyone has to tune in on Sunday to see, yeah, to see what, yeah, happens. Yeah, we'll see what uh, happens. One question. So, you know, aside from the documentaries, you're obviously too involved there. What else are you pulling for at the Oscars? 
I know you don't reveal your ballot. You know, no one's allowed to reveal their ballot as a voter. Yeah. Um, I love Moonlight and I love Barry Jenkins. I think he's brilliant. He's an amazing, amazing director, amazingly talented. And I'm really rooting for Moonlight. I must say that's really my sort of film. You know, and there's some other ones. I love The Rival and, and there's, uh, great films there, but Moonlight obviously, for a number of reasons, speaks to me personally, you know, as as a sidekick, really, as mm. as someone, you know, sort of struggling to find his voice, who struggled his whole life to find his voice, much like much like Owen. I think this movie really speaks to that issue. And um I hope that Barry's standing up there um with the golden statue. Oh, we've got a lot to pull for. Thank you so much for coming and talking in person sure. and uh, for the movie. And I hope you and Owen and the rest of the Susskind family have a really great Oscar night. Thank you. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow with another of our special Oscar week episodes of Little Gold Men. We have lots of great interviews and predictions and other stuff to share. In the meantime, there's lots Oscar-wise going on at VanityFair.com. And now's a great time to follow us at Little Gold Men on Twitter. You can get ready for our big live stream on Oscar night from the Vanity Fair Oscar party. So we're there and we're also on our own on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rye Laws. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced, like all of them, by Alana Milner. And thanks to Lara Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.